Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. This is, this is a, a th- there's an element in this that's difficult but uh, in, in t- to confront uh, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But, you know, since Purim is coming up, so levity is in order, at least uh, to frame our presentation with a little bit of humor, if you can appreciate this. So I, I, my, my teacher uh, for years, who had a major impact on my life and who was a person who sort of framed uh, and informed what, is, what we would call modern orthodoxy in America, was a great thinker and Talmudist named Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. Um, and uh, if you know anything about the, 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 the tradition, the Soloveitchik tradition and its emphasis on rational thinking and on, uh, and, and on the, the, the rational understanding of the role of law, of halakha, of law, Jewish practice in our lives, so you would appreciate what I'm going to show you, which is a type of Purim joke. Because all of you know that in Chabad, uh, the, the Rebbe is considered to be the Messiah, right? Right? But you see, on Purim, uh, there's another messiah, a new messiah. This is Rabbi Soloveitchik when he was a young professor, when he looked more like a German professor before he emigrated to the United States. And, uh, and uh, you know, why not? If, if Schneerson could be the messiah, so, so too can Soloveitchik, except that Soloveitchik would, would bristle at the, at the suggestion, uh, 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 which, is in, which is itself a worthy of a discussion. Why, why is it that a, a, a great legal scholar committed in the most intense way to Jewish practice uh, re- rejected the notion of messianism as, as a relevant category to engage in? Not that he didn't believe in the Messiah, but he believed in it. He, didn't, he, he wasn't interested in being the Messiah or making it happen. He was interested in people working towards a messianic time, but not, I mean, and that's another discussion which we can have at another time, although there are, you know, there are, there are elements of salvation in the book of Esther, too. Um, but in this world, very important. It's all about this world and how we live in this world and how we adjust to the world. All right. Now, having, having started with Soloveitchik, I'm going to quote him in a moment. But just so that, just as a framework for the book. Uh, this book is a difficult one in the, in, in the Bible. Uh, one doesn't have to be a great scholar to conclude that, or to ask, why is it there at all? What's missing in the book? God's name. Absent. How does it enter Holy Scripture? Moreover, it's a vulgar book. Luther's, Luther said so. Luther was adamant in his uh, opposition uh, to the book of Esther. Um, it, it begins with drinking. Uh, uh, Esther invites the king to a drinking party. Right, uh, in, uh, there, uh, and and uh, there's a there's a harem contest uh, at the at the beginning of the book. Uh, there's um, a um, 
uh, some, uh, what, what, what would you call it, uh, 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 this murderous uh, uh, events at the end of the book uh, with, with enormous amounts of violence. Uh, the arch-villain and his sons are publicly hanged in a mode that you know, seems to be uh, a celebratory mode on the part of the, the, the suffering people who were, who were to be his, uh, his victims. Um, and, um, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a book about uh, Persian court intrigue. What's it doing in the Bible? Why does it have the status of Holy Scripture? So that's, and, th and, and there's been resistance to this book. Uh, most, I would say, uh, uh, from, from circles of Christians over the centuries who felt there's something wrong with this. In fact, this is what's wrong with, Jude this is what's wrong with Judaism that they make a book that's about violence and, and drinking into a book, into a part of scripture, okay? Um, now, to add to our problems, I wanna read you from an essay that my son, my son who's uh, among his other talents, he's a Yiddishist, and he translated a speech that Rabbi Soloveitchik gave in 1949 to the Workman's Circle, which was given in Yiddish. Um, and uh, the Workman's Circle was a, was a socialist-oriented uh, uh, organization, and interesting that Soloveitchik would address them. I mean, he spoke to them in Yiddish. So he, he says as follows. Um, Believe me, at times when I flip through the Pentateuch and happen upon a passage like that of the wayward city, the city of idolaters, that has to be destroyed. Right? The whole city has to be destroyed, and everybody in the city and he quotes the passage, and he says, I notice the ruthlessness with which the Torah commands that everything be obliterated. This is not the language of a, you know, of a, of a Rosh Yeshiva, the head of a yeshiva. It's a very, I mean, look how he says, the ruthlessness. The inhabitants slaughtered and the city burnt so that the settlement remains a heap, uh, a heap forever, never to be rebuilt. And that the Torah evidently considers it all an act of rachamim, of compassion. How could that be? We find the same severity with respect to one who seduces and misleads others to worship idolatry. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son entices you, you shall not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall you, your eye pity him, neither shall you spare, neither, neither shall you conceal him. If a seducer begins to bait you or to spread false ideas, you should show him no rachmanut, no mercy, but rather eradicate and uproot his evil. The same position is taken with respect to the Amalekites. You shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. And when Saul behaved with Rachmanut, with compassion toward Agag, the king of the Amalekites, we'll see this in a moment, he lost the kingship. Is the Torah so cruel, so ruthless, as to be unwilling to forgive these sinners? By the way, you know, I have to just say with, Robert, with, with this passage, it's enough that he dared to ask these questions. I don't know teachers and yeshivas today who would ask these questions. Am I right? Then? I mean, they wouldn't even, and, and, to, and, to, and to formulate the question in, that, in the way that he does, you know, and he goes on to say, um, the same Torah which gave the world the first principles of honesty, rachmanut, again, and justice, which established the maxim that the father shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers, seems to have suddenly suppressed all of its ideals and taught the Jew that Rachmanut is a crime. 
Saul left the king alive, that was a cry. Were the Gnostics, the early Christians, correct in arguing that the Old Testament preaches brutality and the New Testament love and compassion? I once read an essay about Purim, he says, by Zhitlovsky. Now, I don't know, I don't know if any of you know who Zhitlovsky was. He, he was a Russian socialist uh, and a sort of a revolutionary ideologist of Yiddishism. And he was a diasporist. He believed in creating a diaspora culture for Jews, not in, this, not in, not in Palestine, but you know, wherever, wherever, they, wherever they lived. So you know, you're talking about someone who, who read widely. He says, I once read an essay about Purim by Zhitlovsky in which he attacked the Book of Esther for the base animalistic instincts manifested therein and for the bloodthirstiness demonstrated by Mordecai and Esther in settling their account with their enemies, with the enemies of the Jews and with Haman and his ten sons. As a youth who had absorbed the novels of Romain Roland and had idealized Tolstoy, Goethe, and Francis of Assisi at a time when world opinion held that one should not oppose and uproot evil by military means, but rather passively bear it and submit oneself to its beatings, when the European literature of people like Franz Werfel and Stefan Zweig came under the influence of the pacifistic ideology of the New Testament and of the Christian saints, it was in truth a challenge for a person not to critique the severe stance of our Jewish tradition. Years passed, I grew older, and world history along with me. Europe continued to toy with these Christian ideologies, and in the meanwhile, the Christians in Germany created a kind of wayward city. <laughs> Quote, they, they drew away the inhabitants of their city, so that at the same time that the European intellectuals were writing books about St. Francis of Assisi, they allowed the Hitler seducers to poison the minds of a nation 80 million strong. Today we find ourselves in 1949. Tell me, friends, many of you are not religious, but who was right? The Old Testament with its severe stance or the New Testament with its sentimental love? the Jewish religion whose hands are clean, or other religions which have on their consciences the deaths of so many Jewish martyrs. Had the world not preached passivity and not cultivated a hypocritical sentimentality, had it treated Hitler as one who seduces and misleads others, millions more would be living in the world and the present would be filled with far more joy. Is the Book of Esther an animalistic or a deeply human document? Vengeance is at times a holy poison, as when it uproots evil and brutality. So it's something, something to ponder, something to ponder and, and, and to discuss. I'm sure that you know, we, would have, we might have some varied opinions on this question. But I do remind you that it was on Purim Day in 1994 that Baruch Goldstein entered the mosque in the city of Hebron and massacred 29 Muslims in the course of prayer. And he believed that he was fulfilling the obligation to wipe out Amalek at that time. So the, well, I, 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 I should mention this, a, a, a very prominent professor at UCLA passed away last week. I just went to pay a shiva call last night. And uh, so I conducted the, this funeral service. Um, he was 93 years old, and he was a psychologist who created a whole field in, uh, studying, in, in uh, studying social power, the influence power, power in relationships. Um, and he would come every year 
to Hillel for the high holidays. He, he was very active. He was active. He came to many different things. But on the second day of, of, of Rosh Hashanah, he would, sit in the, he would sit in the front row when we read the passage about the binding of Isaac. And he, came for what, he, came, he sat there for one reason only. When we started our Torah discussion, he always raised the question about the morality of God and the commandment. And he was resistant to, to hearing any possible response because he saw the passage as dangerous as educationally dangerous in terms of the model that it promotes. So, um, yes, yes, my friend. Uh, where, <laughs> where do we see Jewish extremism today that actually runs the risk of being violent as opposed to an extremism, extremism that's just ideological? And would you make such a distinguishing? Like yeah. if we see like how certain ideologies can lead to a violent outpouring. Uh -huh. and should that be a concern or do you think it's all pretty tame? Well, the, the only, the, Interesting enough, you know, I, I don't, I, I, you know, the danger of, of getting political, the, 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 um, the only expression of sort of collective support for violence uh, uh, has emerged out of the community of the settlers um, uh, con uh, consistently, one, you know, the, 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 it, was a, it was out of the settler community or someone sympathetic to the settler community that, um, uh, or uh, who are, you know, the, who are political messianists, it's in, right? Like uh, Yigal Amir, who assassinated Rabin, um, like, like, like Baruch Goldstein. Um, there are rabbis in the, you know, in yeshivot who, who, promote, uh, via, uh, who promote this ideology them, without themselves actually uh, practicing it. But uh, I, 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 I studied with a teacher who was, who was uh, actually, he, he, he was a Chabadnik, but very influential man named Yitzhak Ginsberg. I studied with him a long time ago. He was a, a, a magnificent teacher of Hasidut. He also nurtures violence and has been the Rebbe of people who have been willingly been involved in, 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 in vengeance and in, and in uh, what do you call, you know, in, in, respond, in, response, in, in vengeful responses. Um, so I, I don't know if this is satisfying, but, but the combination of messianism and politics is a dangerous combination uh, that is a, aspiring to, me, to, uh, to, to transform the world is something welcome. Uh, uh, we might be uncomfortable with some expressions of messianism, but when it's joined with politics, then it's, it's downright explosive. It's explosive. The other thing I want to say about violence in, in, in Jewish life is that the fact that, that um, when, we, when, we came, uh, um, when we came back to the land, so we came back to the place that is the fulfillment of our dreams. And therefore, we revived some of the biblical drama in our lives. And certainly Ben-Gurion emphasized the biblical the, uh, uh, the underpinnings of the, of the state of Israel. So the Bible ceased to be a book of, of, of simply abstract teachings, and it became a primer for activism in the hands of the people who were living in the land. So <coughs> I, I, once, I once wrote the following, that when we were in Eastern Europe, and, when we read, and we read um, the Talmud, the Talmudic passage that taught Tov Shebagoyim Harog, the best among the Gentiles, are, are, are to be killed, something like that, which is an exaggerated statement made 
in, 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 in passing. So what happened was we read it. Some people may have been bothered by it. We went home, and we ate Cholent. But in the state of Israel, the yeshiva students who study that passage, they go and do reserve duty. And they're armed. So, the, so to use a term that's in use today, the Bible has been weaponized in that environment. And itself is an explosive, it's an explosive document. Unless, unless there are principles of restraint that are put into action that need to be understood. Because one of the problems in, with regard to scripture, and I have to watch my time, uh, is that there's no whiteout in scripture. So you can, you know, you might get upset by a passage and by its teachings, but it's there. So how do you contend with it? So to respond, I always introduce in these, set, in these settings, and in general in my teachings in many different places, because there are problematic verses, many, as Solabachik himself points out, I call them the Stendhal principles. I had the for good fortune in, my, in, my, in the course of my work at the Hartman Institute to meet and befriend Christa Stendhal, who, was the, who had been the Bishop of Stockholm and was the Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. So we were once on a panel together and he presented the following. He said, when I teach a passage in the New Testament to my students in Divinity School that I know is going to be read on Sunday, it's one of the cycle of readings that are read in church on Sundays, and it's anti-Jewish. And by the way, he's one of, he was one of the early scholars who wrote about anti-Semitism in the New Testament and was very active in bringing Jews and Christians uh, together. He's a Lutheran. Um, uh, this, this is what I told my students. Number one, uh, what, he would do, what you need to do is acknowledge that it's a harmful passage uh, that teaches uh, some form of hatred or bigotry. Right? So you have to acknowledge it. Of course, it presents a prejudice about the Jews. Number two, contextualize the passage. It has a historical setting. It has no relevance to Jews today. It was written about the first century, right? not about the experience today. Number three, if you can, reinterpret it. And if you can't reinterpret it, he said, then you have to condemn it. So that became a test for me. What the, how do religious traditions deal with what I call their texts of terror? Each religious tradition, there's no religious tradition that doesn't have some, in the monotheistic tradition, and as we're seeing today, even in the non-monotheistic traditions, the so-called, you know, what we, what we consider to be the pacifistic traditions of the East. Look at the Hindus in, in India, right, and the Buddhists in Myanmar. They seem to, you know, get into the massacre business. All of them, all of them. So religious religion, you know, that's mixed with politics and in, 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 in its extreme, in its ultimate forms. I mean, there's, there, it's a type of, you know, ultimate nationalistic forms. Wherever it's expressed, whether in Myanmar or whether in India, is going to produce violence. And the question then becomes, what... What mechanisms do those traditions preserve, maintain, and actually promote as a check and a restraint on those impulses that are built into the tradition itself, the claim that we're right and they're wrong, and, we, and God has somehow, God is going to be realized through us, or the right way is through us, and they're distorting and corrupting our way. 
This is a universal issue. It's not a Jewish issue. It's not a Christian issue. We all share this problem in the world, right? And how do, how, how do we, how do we um, uh, propose to confront it in a creative and in a moral way? And, I, and so, therefore, I introduce you to the Stendhal principles. You know, I think that, for instance, you know, you, um, the, the, the Shabbos before Purim is Parashat Zachor. So I have this terrible thought. Now, on Parashat Zachor, we read the passage about the Amalekites and the commandment that they have to be wiped out. Let's say you're a visitor coming from some strange place and you happen to land into a synagogue. And you, if you land, and land into a very traditional synagogue, so you're going to see that it's possible that people are making noise, a little, uh, either a lot of noise in some places or at least a little bit of noise, until the reading of this passage where the rabbi announces, everybody has to pay attention. This is the most important reading that we're going to do. It's, an, it's an obli- a, a Torahitic obligation. And then they read the passage, and not only they read it carefully, but there are some words that have to be corrected because of their, 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 their possible different pronunciations. It's the most detailed and uh, 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 attention paid to, to, to small uh, concerns um, and grammar, grammatical concerns uh, because of the, uh, the, the great significance of this passage. Not only that, after services, there's an announcement. If anybody missed the reading of this passage, it's going to be read again. And we have a later reading in the afternoon. The women who didn't come, we're going to read it once, once again. And then you say to yourself, what are they getting all excited about? They have to wipe out, they have to commit genocide. This is what all this attention is being paid to, a passage that commands the wiping out of an entire people. What's wrong with this picture? You know, I, I wonder, you know, do, do, we, do, we at least, do we at least take a look at ourselves? I'm not saying not to read it. And memory is important. Right? And so I, I, I don't deny that. But perspective is also important. And most important is consciousness. In other words, be aware of what you're doing. Because you're inducing within people something. Maybe it's unconscious. But there's a flavor for vengeance that, that I think can be tasted in, the, in this emphasis. Unless, unless there's... At the same time that it's read, there's also restraint. I mean, that, that, you, that you limit it, you reinterpret, because there, there are tons of literature trying to reinterpret Amalek and trying to interpret the evil within us. So maybe rabbis are obligated. We're going to read this. This is important. And the reason this is important is we can't escape the fact that evil persists. It's in us. It's around us. What are we doing about it? And it's not about wiping out an ethnic group, another uh, competing ethnic group. Let's understand that. That may be, the, the, that's the simple meaning of the text. But you're Jewish. Who told you that you're allowed to read a text in a simple way? Did anybody ever teach you to read a text in a simple way? You're not allowed to do that. Yes, sir. What's, I mean, <laughs> what, 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 what's this is what he does for me. What's, wait, excuse me, what's the what? Militaristically hawkish. What's the distinction between that and being vengeful? Meaning, like, what's, is it about no. offense versus defense? Is it no, a, no, I, I think, no, I, I, think that, I think that there are people who are militaristically hawkish because of strategic reasons, and that they have, and they have... No, but I'm saying, what creates that shift between those two? Like, what, ah. What's, what distinguishes ah. the two is... Ah, uh-huh, 
Well, first of all, let me, let me say this. That's exactly what we didn't say. I mean, we didn't say throughout our history that we're going to bomb you tenfold. And I think that we ought to, we ought to this is what I, what I call is, what I, I'm, I'm going to say this about the Megillah if I ever get to it, that we, what, we develop, what we develop is what I call a constructive memory. We take a memory of tragedy and then we try to transform it and say, okay, so we suffered, so what's our obligation to others to make sure other people don't suffer? That's, you know, so that's, that's a type of, you, you remember, and you, rem and you remember in this constructive way. Now, it's an unnatural way of remembering, because psychologically, Shmuley's right. The psychological impulse for vengeance is very real, and it's, uh, and, sort of, and, it, and, it's more, and it's more natural than the impulse to try to transcend my, my, th that, that tendency. That's why you need teachers to, to bring you that. It, what, what motivates people, you know, I'm not a psychologist, and so I, I think that there are people with pre who have predisposition to this type of behavior, you know, and, the, and, 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 and they, you know, and they, and they, 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 they're, they're hooked into this way of thinking, and some of them have a capacity to actually influence others. That, and, and people are susceptible to these types of arguments, that there are strangers coming and they're going to take everything away from you. And they're going to undermine, they're going to corrupt you. you know, and and, and you, you're, you're fighting for higher principles. But you know, that, that, that's, that's really what we have to wa watch for. Right? So here we have a story. Let me say one other thing in anticipation of what we're going to say. We do have a ritual corrective that's introduced into Purim uh, that, that is very traditional, at least in terms of my interpretation. And that is, though, now on the eve of Purim, we have a fast day. Now, we're told that the fast day is to commemorate the fact that it's a fast of Esther, but Esther fasted for three days. So thank God we don't have to fast for three days. And, and, but, but, but again, with a liberal nature of interpretation, I've, all, I, I, I've taught for years that perhaps the reason that we fast is sort of to atone for the harsh violence that occurs in the book. And that we, that we, we like, where do I get that from? Where do I get that from? Tell me. I mean, I'm not inventing this whole cloth. From another, from another ritual and another fast on another holiday that, that's going to take place soon. soon. After Purim. Yeah, so what, what's the fast of the firstborn? Why does the firstborn fast? You, you would say because they were saved. Okay, yes, but more than that. We were saved and their firstborn died. So the, fast, the firstborn fast ritually both to commemorate their saving and an awareness that there are people who suffered at, when, when they were saved. To me, that's a living tradition. Is it atonement? Yeah, there's a sense of atonement, a type of atonement. You know, we made it through, and they, and because, because, you know, again, not every firstborn deserved to die if the, in that description, as you read it. Whether it happened or not, there's a description of firstborn dying. It means young children died. This is a punishment from God? This is a righteous punishment? Why did it happen? That's a whole other question. But I think, again, if we read Scripture, this is, I think, the, the force of, of Shmuley's question before. If we read Scripture, and Scripture 
carries with it enormous weight. So we have to make sure that our tradition is able to respond in a way that, uh, in a creative way, that is able to transform some teachings that at one time might have been understood in, in one way and in the harshest possible way. And I, I would say, and redeem those teachings so that they actually present us with something of value. I'm having this argument with my friend this year who tells me he's not coming to shul on Purim because he doesn't want to hear the Megillah being read. And he's not the first one. There was a famous Israeli philosopher named Ernst Simon who lived in Jerusalem. And so in Jerusalem, they read the Megillah on the 15th of Adar because it was a city that was surrounded by a, by a wall. So that, that the tradition is like in Shushan in the, in, in the biblical story, they, they observed Purim on the second day, the day after we observed Purim. So what he would do on the 15th of Adar is he would leave Jerusalem and he would go to Tel Aviv and he would distribute tzedakah on, in, in Tel Aviv to fulfill the obligation of matanot le'avionim, of giving, of, giving of giving poor people support. Um, and he abided by the principle of ha'oseik mitzvah patur min mitzvah. If you're busy fulfilling one mitzvah, you're freed of the obligation of doing another mitzvah. So, so in other words, what I want to show, now, now, you know, he was an individual, but it, first of all, that story is legend. Uh, I don't even know if, I, I, I know his son, and I'm not sure that he did it, actually, but the fact, but he had that type of personality. So, so that's, that's what I'm looking for. Does your tradition own up to its teachings and push back in some way so that it's actually trying to develop your character in the process of confronting some pretty troubling passages. That's a, you know, that's a real creative endeavor because it's taking something that's really down and turning it upside down so that it's actually going to be inspiring and, and in some way to, uh, uh, and where you have an awareness and a willingness and the self-confidence to confront your tradition and not just whitewash it. That's, I think, a, a great strength. You don't, have to do, you don't have to say, oh, Judaism would never teach anything like that. It, not only did it teach that, but there are Jews who do these things. That's the problem. So, so we have an obligation to be realistic in, in, in the way which we deal with it. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Okay, now the, 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 the book itself. So you have, so let me tell you what you have and what, and what my response is here in this book. That there, uh, Mordechai, Mordechai and Esther um, ha, have, have an ancestor. Their ancestor happens to be King Saul. Now, the, how do I know? Now, what, what makes me so aware of that? Because the Megillah identifies um, uh, uh, Mordechai as a Benjaminite. Ben Shaul, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, Ish Shimini. All right, now Kish is actually Shaul's father. So the, 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 the line of descent, you know, is, is, of ancestry in the Megillah skips generations. But it does attribute descent from Shaul's family directly to Mordechai. And we know that they're Benjaminites. And we also know that the Benjaminites were... Uh, themselves were exiled together with the, Jew with the Judeans. And some actually remained in, in, in Judea after the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. The setting for the book, uh, I didn't get to this, I, uh, you know, it's the uh, parenthesis. The book is a historical novel, all right? Uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a piece of history. 
um, no Persian king ever married a Jewish woman. And, and, and I just read something, someone trying to prove it. It, it, it's not, it's really not possible. And, and, and the court intrigue, you know, it, it's, not about, it's not about history. It, its setting is in the period between the destruction of the first temple and the construction of the second temple. And also there's no evidence that there was animosity among the Persians. On the contrary, the Persians were the most benign, uh, the benign rulers uh, of, that, that Jews faced in all their exilic periods. The Assyrians were brutal, the, Greco, the, Greece, the, Greeks and the, well, the Greeks and the Romans fought with the Jews and Jews fought with them and lived, and, and Cyrus told the Jews to return and rebuild the temple. So you, you know, why, why does the Megillah choose the, poor, you know, the Persians as the focus of, of this hostility? So we're, so, so we're reading a story uh, about something else and, and what, I, what I should not forget to tell you is this line from Elie Wiesel. There are many things that happen that are not true and there are many things that didn't happen that are true. So the truth that you have to look for here is the truth of the values. What are the values of the book? What are they trying to teach us? And it's not, uh, that's not fact. It's not about fact. And facts, by the way, are very weak truths because they come and go. You know, in other words, history comes and it passes. It's not, it, it, what, what's significant is something that lasts with you and that has, that has legs, that somehow has an impact on your life beyond the moment. History is sort of momentary. It happened. I ate breakfast this morning. I mean, that's not, I don't know if that's a historical event. But, you know, it's not, a, it's, it's, not in, it's not formative. Truth is something that has a truth that has, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, what we're talking about here are values that have a formative uh, capacity in our lives um, and that, help, that are building blocks for who we are. And the, what we, that's why we, we sometimes have presentations in the Bible of narratives that are not history, but teach us a much more valuable and deeper truth than history itself. Okay, that's the point. So what do we learn here? These are the descendants of Saul. And what did Saul do? And, wh and why did he lose the monarchy? Anybody knows why did he lose the monarchy? Because he didn't kill... He didn't kill because he was commanded by... Samuel and by right, he was a king. We know the law. You entering the land. What was he supposed to do? Wipe out. Wipe out the Amalekites. What did he do? He left some of them. He left the king alive, and the cattle. Well, he he killed the men, women, and children. But and he also killed the bad guys. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a sick cow. He killed. Yeah, all right. No, but he 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 killed. He fulfilled the obligation, except he left Agag alive. And we are left to believe, by the way, it's a very interesting setting. Oh, poor Saul. You know, then Samuel rebukes him and tells him he lost the monarchy and so on and so forth. Uh, Saul is a compassionate guy. What's he getting, you know, raked over the coals for, for, for leaving? He left someone alive. Thank God. You know, the Torah says wipe everybody out. He left the king alive. But all right, but on that, I remember when I was younger, I read an essay by an Israeli literary person who wrote this marvelous analysis and said, you know, you've got to understand something. In the ancient world, what kings did to celebrate their victory is they marched the opposing king through the street in chains, and they demonstrated how great they were. So it was an act, rather than an act of compassion, it was an act of arrogance on the part of, on the part of Saul. So it was not only defiance, but it was uh, self-serving in, in, in the way in which he tried to utilize and exploit morality to claim that he, that's at least the harsh, the harsh judgment. So he leaves Agag alive. Now, who's Haman? He's identified in the Megillah. What's his line of descent? How is he identified? Haman ha? Agagi. 
Ah, he's the descendant of this king that Saul allowed to live. Ah, so now Saul's grandson is left to clean up the mess. Right? Uh, so how does he, how do, how do they, how do they clean up the mess? So this, this is the confrontation. So, you know, in, in other words, what happens in the Bible, in a way, in, on the simplest level, is what goes around comes around. But that's, I think that's, that, that's simple. Um, meaning, you know, Saul caused the problem, so Saul's descendant has to somehow respond. But, the, but, but Saul's problem is not necessarily that he left the king alive. That's only the, the linchpin that allows us to see the connection in the stories. But there's, some, there's something much deeper. The real problem with Saul is that he massacred a whole people, a whole tribe of people. Now, even though it was a fulfillment of a commandment, there's something problematic there. We sense there's something problematic there. And the book, in a way, is trying to think about this. And so it tells us a story about how there was this king who was uh, exploited uh, by an evil minister named Haman, who was this Agagite. And the, 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 the Haman bought, bought the king off and convinced him to sign these edicts to wipe out the Jewish people because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. Right? I mean, so you have to think to yourself about you know, all the foolishness in this book. You know, a, a king is going to agree that to some minister's whim to wipe out a whole population of citizens because one guy won't bow, bow, bow down to him. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a joke going on here. We'll see in a moment what, how, how, how serious the joke is. So the king, they, they sit down and they have a drink, and the king signs the edict. All right. Then, of course, Esther reveals herself, and Haman is the, Haman is the, the culprit here, and Haman is hanged, and so on and so forth, all right, with his ten sons. Um, and, and, and Esther tells the king, you know, there's this edict to kill my people. So what does the king do? If you were the king, what would you do? What would you do? Resend the edict. Resend it and do what? How, re, rescind. 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 Oh, rescind. rescind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. I would rescind the edict. All right? But not in a parody. What does the king do? What's that? He signs a new edict. Now, the Jews should massacre all the Persians. Now, in chapter 1, we were already told that Persian law is, is such that once it's issued, it can't be rescinded. So, so what, what, you, what, you, what you have is this, you know, this, this joke of a kingdom where rules, arbitrary rules, are eternal. I mean, you know, right? They're eternal. They're, they're divine. I mean, whatever. They have power forever. And even the king can't retract one of the, his, own, his own edict, his own declaration, even if it means, if you, if you take the text seriously on, on, on a simple level, that, the, that there's going to be a fight to the finish. And the Persians are going to try to massacre the Jews, and the Jews are going to try to massacre the Persians, and there's nobody going to be left for the king to rule over. I mean, can you imagine issuing contradictory edicts where basically the king is calling for chaos? Let's have chaos, and everybody should kill one another. You know, it, it, when I say it's a, it's a joke, it, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very serious parody of the type of brutality of arbitrary law and of, and of a leader 
who's, who's, not, who's unqualified and who's, uh, who's bought, bought off because of his own ego needs. I mean, we, we know about the dangers of such leaders. That's why I think this book is really more relevant than, uh, than, than we, we, we can even imagine because of the disasters that can take place when you have, when you have leaders who are so self, you know, self-consumed in, 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 this, in this fashion. All right, so that, what we need to do is to pay attention to certain subtle distinctions uh, in the book. So the first distinction that I, uh, which is both a parallel and, a, 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 well, we'll see here in a moment um, just what are the parallels and what are the distinctions. So in the book of Samuel, so Saul is told, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. All right. The edict in Esther to the Jews is that the king had granted the Jews, this was a, 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 a public decree that was distributed, that the king had granted the Jews that were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy and to slay and to cause to perish all the forces of the people and province that would assault them, their little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Now, what's interesting, what do you, is there a distinction here? It's both parallel. What's the distinction here? There's one phrase. Take the spoil. Well, first of all, take the spoil, but that's the same thing as before. The province that would assault them, just the people who would Another, Wait, I'm sorry, that's a distinction. You're right, because they were, they were prohibited from taking the spoil of the Amalekites, and, and, but, but, but Saul did take the spoil, right? Right? And, and, and here they're told they should take the spoil. Okay. But what, what did you say? I'm sorry. Aha. So they're only, they're only allowed to kill those who attack them. In fact, the Hebrew, literally means to defend themselves. In fact, one of the, in, in, a, in another phrase, one of the medieval commentators makes the point where it says, which is usually translated as vengeance. He says, no, that's lincombi over him. That's to, to, to avenge their en enemies. Lehina came means, to de uh, mean it's, a it's when you are attacked, you're permitted to, uh, to fight back, to defend yourself. So in the attack on Amalek, it was an aggressive attack. In the attack that the Jews were supposed to be involved with in Persia, it was a defensive maneuver. However, let me just raise another question about the joke presented to us that's intended to, to, to deliver the message that this is all ridiculous. All, some total of, pe of people killed by the Jews after the reports, they did, it did happen. There was this decree, two decrees, contradictory decrees, but wonder of wonder and miracle of miracles. 75,000 plus Persians were killed. How many Jews? None. Is this a serious presentation? Is this, a real, is this realistic? Is it not just an exaggerated number for the sake of the story to present us with something about you know, some, some setting and, based, and, and on, on, on that level to parody the arbitrary rule of a king who would issue these types of rules? Because we're going to come at the end to something much more redemptive. Moreover, Moreover, the king says explicitly, more than once, 
take their booty. Because that's exactly what he ordered to the Persians to take the booty from the Jews. Three times, three times in the Megillah, the editor and author of the Megillah decided to include a phrase that's otherwise a puzzle for its inclusion and its repetition. Right? Uvabiza lo yadam. That they did not take the booty. That means that the, the author of the Megillah understands the moral dilemma raised by the passage of massacre and glosses the story of massacre with a sense, with a, 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 a phrase that introduces a sense of moral restraint. That's, uh, now, some of my friends think that I'm exaggerating here, but what I think is happening is that the, the, the Megillah is building a case for the injustice of arbitrary rule and the bureaucratic mode or the immoral mode of Persian legis legislation, 12 times in the book, the word dat is used. Now, in modern Hebrew, dat means? Uh, oh, no, that's da'at, da'at. Dalitaf means generally in modern Hebrew. Dat umidina, state and religion. It's a, it's a Hebrew word used for religion. In Persian, that means law. You know, the, the, uh, apart, you know, apart from what I said, that the book lacks historical support or historicity, the author was very familiar with the goings-on in, uh, in the Persian monarchy. The description in the first chapter of the, of the drinking party at the palace is actually an accurate description of the, nature, of the grandeur uh, and, the, uh, you know, and, the, and, and the spending ways of, of, of Persian monarchs. So, and, and, there are, and there are Persian words in the Megillah. Um, there are, there are uh, the, the Jews are called for the first time Yehudim. It's the latest book in the Bible. And, that, and the, I, I want to make another comment about that, about that in, a, in a moment, okay? So there's a parody, so, and, and there's dot, dot which represents law. There's a law for everything. In the first chapter we're told, hashtiyakadat, they drink according to a law, a rule. There's a law for the harem, because the women are, you know, uh, prepared in a particular dot. Right? So uh, the, the word dot is used over and over again to emphasize the fact that the Persians had rules for everything, and therefore rules for nothing. In other words, it's a law that doesn't work, because there's no distinction between, you know, nonsense and significant. Massacre is a dot, right? And drinking is a dot. And beauty contest is a dot. And women should not object, object, to, their, uh, object to their husbands. That's a dot, you know, of course, you know, something like that. So the, there's an overemphasis over on rules and, le and, and legislation that basically doesn't introduce values into the society. The question is, where are the values? Yes. We don't know. We don't, I'm telling you, we Theoretically, don't... Theoretically, he was Persian, right? Yes, but we don't, know, we don't know exactly how he fits in because we tried to make him, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, we, know we know about the names of Persian kings. We're not sure who, who he is. There are people who've tried to figure it out. I mean, that, I, I'm telling you, after a while, what I'm trying to tell you is that I, I, I stopped torturing myself 
about whether I can find whether the, the, this is historically accurate. And I say to myself, the meaning of this book transcends historical accuracy. Why should I torture? Why, why do I need you know, endless questions? Did it happen or didn't happen? That's not the question. What does it teach us? Now, the rabbis never asked the question about did it happen. They were always asking about what something means. They understood that history, you know, history is not what religion is about. And, and by the way, religions aren't all that great in presenting history because they're interested in presenting values and ideas. And so, you know, when Rambam writes history, he's inventing the history that he's writing. But he's doing it for the sake of, of, of a grand idea that he wants you to understand as central to Judaism or central to the way in which we think. That's, that's how philosophers, the, you know, the Torah is more in line with, or the, the Bible is more in line with a philosophic tradition than a historical tradition. And it uses history as a setting and the narrative as a way of promoting ideas that have, you know, um, that have valence for, for long, for maybe for eternity. That's the point. The values are, sig are significant in that, in that regard and not limited by time. History is limited by time in that regard. So that's, and, and you'll see there are many people who comment about this. And we get too, too caught up in, um, in, in, in these questions. All right, so the first thing I'm, I'm going to say is the following. That to a certain extent, Esther, the book of Esther, is a tikkun. It's a repair for the, for, uh, the acts of Saul. And it introduces us a consciousness that what happened in the time of Saul deserves a critique. And there's a critique going on here about this, this type of behavior in which he tried to demonstrate a type of morality which was, which was, which was, uh, which was hypocritical. Moreover, moreover, I want you to take a look at the, at the Midrash um, from Genesis Rabbah. On the second page, by the way, you have, you have the verses, the three verses where, uh, but on the spoil they laid not their hand. In chapter 9, three times in the chapter, it says they did not take the spoil. So side by side with saying they killed all these people, it says they didn't take the spoil. Right? That's really, really significant. Right? And uh, enough, because I, 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 I need to finish. All right, so the Midrash on the top of the page. You started a little like, early. Yeah, so yeah, okay, no, 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 I, I, I'll finish in five minutes. When, when, Esau, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceeding great and bitter cry. So it says, Kishmoa Esav et Aviv, so Vayizak Zaka Gedola Umara. All right, remember those, that Hebrew. Vayizak Zaka Gedola Umara, a bitter cry. Rabbi Hanina said, Whoever maintains that the Holy One, blessed be he, is lax in dispensing justice, may his bowels become lax. He is merely long-suffering. Right? God doesn't exact suffering immediately. I'm sorry, justice immediately. But ultimately collects his due. Jacob made, Jacob made Esau break out into a cry. But once, and where was he punished for it? in Shushan, the castle, as it says, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. So that's, um, uh, that's, that's Mordechai. I'm sorry, Vayizak Zaka Gedola Umara, once again. So you have, I think that in, in Genesis it uses the word Vayitzak, um, or one of the places. So the same, it's the same word, Litzok and Lizok, they're related. So Esau cried, 
Amalek is the descendant of Esau. Haman is the descendant of Amalek. Mordecai is the descendant of Jacob. So Jacob caused Esau to cry out when he stole the blessings. So the, the, the Midrash already says that the whole story of Esther is a tikkun. It's a repair. It attributes the repair to the act committed against Esau. But we understand that there's something very deep in this story that's trying to get to fundamentals and to basic questions about the sort of the morality and the justice of our tradition and the story that we tell, and that we have some rough edges in our story. Because Jacob and Esau, you know, there's nothing in their, in their, in their birth that should indicate that one should take precedence over the other. And how, how, more, moreover, moreover, Jacob did steal the blessings. Uh, right? There's no denying that. So the, 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 what, what the Torah is telling us is, look, and because I don't, I, don't, I, 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 I don't embrace the school or buy the school that says it's measure for measure, it's, to me it's much deeper than that. What it says is it's a way of raising our awareness that something bad happened in our foundation. And that if we're a people with a moral tradition, we need to carry that memory with us and try to figure out how during the course of history we can address that, that wrong. We can't go back on what happened. We are Israel, and they are, not, and they are who they are. They're not us. right? And we inherited the blessing, so to speak. We, we have this destiny. We have this mission. It's not their mission. On the other hand, we also have commandment to be just and moral. So how do we, in the course of history, repair what was done in the past? That's, that, that remains an overarching goal, aspiration, an overarching aspiration. And we have, and we have num numbers of these. And the book of Esther reminds us, again, both of the passage with Esau and then further on in history of the passage with Saul, and cast an obligation on our shoulders. How do we carry that memory into the future? And what do we teach our generations about the right way to respond? So the book then goes on to say, okay, the dot in Shushan is the dot of arbitrary law of this foolish king that's presented and the, and the bureaucratic tradition of, 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 of Persia. But you know what? At the end of the book, what happens? Mordechai and Esther send out a letter to outlying Jewish communities. And they say, you should observe these days of Purim. Now, why should we observe these days of Purim? You had, a, you had an incident in Persia. I live in Egypt. It doesn't relate to me at all. So what's, what happens? The people in the outlying communities accept the practice that Mordechai and Esther inaugurated. By what authority? Who are they? The first time in Jewish history that in the Bible, actually, a holiday is instituted that wasn't commanded by God. How come? <coughs> so my friend Richard Elliott Friedman wrote a book called The Disappearance of God or something like that, in which he explains that the book of, that the book of Esther the name of Esther meaning, meaning itself in Hebrew, although we don't know it, its origin may be Babylonian, we're not sure, 
or Persian, uh, the name of Esther in Hebrew means hidden. So Esther is hiddenness. Ah, now I, I'm beginning to understand something about this book. This book is about the fact that in spite of, the in spite of God's absence, the people need to take responsibility. And that this is the book of the beginning of history. And my friend Richard Elliott Friedman claims that the book of Esther is the apex, rather than being the vulgar book in the Bible, it's the apex of, of biblical achievement, the pinnacle, because the whole purpose of the Bible, he reads, is to wean the people from a dependency on miracles so that they learn how to take responsibility and to, and to bring holiness into the world on their own. How are they supposed to do that, the Megillah says? The Megillah says, take your suffering and turn your celebration into a day in which you send gifts to one another and a day in which you, you, you distribute tzedakah to anyone. And the halacha is very clear. Jews, non-Jews, this is a day of tzedakah. What do you mean it's a day of tzedakah? It's a day for a party. Listen to the Rambam. I just gave, I gave you this sheet because the Rambam clearly understands this and is troubled by this. So on the, on, the, on, on, the, uh, on the bottom of the page, Rambam Megillah 217, he writes, it is preferable to spend more on gifts to the poor than on the poor meal or on presents to friends. For no joy, it's a sheet that I gave out uh, today. For no joy uh, is greater or more glorious than the joy of gladdening the hearts of the poor. In other words, what's the greatest joy? Giving. Giving, not just getting. For no joy is greater or more glorious than the joy of gladdening the hearts of the poor, the orphans, the widows, and the strangers. Indeed, he who causes the hearts of these unfortunates to rejoice emulates the divine presence of whom scripture says, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So, so, the, so the book of Esther ends for the first time in the Bible with human legislation. This is the beginning. I mean, it's kind of a real turnaround if you want to take this narrative story. It's the beginning of Torah Shaval Peh. It's the beginning of the oral tradition. The book of Esther is, the, is a rabbinic, is sort of the oral tradition in the Bible. Already to introduce the idea that Jewish, that, that orality is continuous with the Torah that was revealed and not something novel. It's natural because if you take your tradition seriously, then you're going to want to comment on it and you're going to want it to grow. And you're not only going to wait and say, what does God tell us to do? You know who was doing that? The, De the Dead Sea community. They wouldn't do anything and observe anything unless God told them to do that. And you have all these people who say, why should I do that? God, you know, uh, so the Megillah comes and says, you know why you should do that? Because it's something that adds value to your life. Take a look and, and take this seriously. And try to understand these obligations as something that helps you build a structure for purpose. It's positive law. It's purposeful law. It's not law that's meant to reflect simply the arbitrary needs of a king who has to dominate you. Because the purpose is not for anybody to dominate you, but for you to grow in the process as a, as a human being. So the book of Esther, rather than being a celebration of violence and, uh, uh, some, and, and perverse right, in that regard, is a book that is, that, is, that is reparative, constructive, elevating, and inspiring. Now look to the last text that I brought you on the first, 
on the on the what do you call it the, uh, uh, the 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 original sheets, and I'll show you one final teaching. So first of all, during the course of my study of the Book of Esther, I came across this uh, this commentary and artistic representation of the Book of Esther that was printed in, in Germany in the 20s and 30s uh, by a Jewish artist and, and, and biblical scholar of sorts, uh, Joseph Kaplan. Um, and he says that he, he published the book in green because the Midrash says that Esther Yerakraka, she was, that she was beautifully green. So there's something verdant about this representation. I mean, he has a whole explanation of, 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 the, of the symbolism. But what was striking to me was what he did with, they did not take the booty. He, 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 he took swords, cross swords, and, and three of them, right? Because it says three times that didn't take the booty. And he crosses them in the fashion of peace. So he sees, it's such an interesting read that he introduces a pacifistic reading of a book filled with violence. And he takes the book to teach the opposite of what people think it teaches. You know, so this was sort of inspiring to me, and that it emerged out of Europe at a time where there was, you know, where anti-Semitism was rife. And this is, this, is, this is his reflection. So this is number one. And number two is a teaching that I came across a few years ago, which is sort of amazing in its way. Therefore, my brothers, says Rabbi Jonathan Ibershitz, who lived in the 17th century, learn the good or learn well not to hold on to hatred. Rather, do the opposite. Learn to do good to your enemy. So it is befitting according to human morality and the fence, the ethics of the Torah. And this is the glory of Israel, not to hold on to hatred. This way, your traits will be in line with nature, not to bear a grudge and not to take vengeance. And thus they said, quote, a person is obligated to get drunk on Purim until the point that he does not know the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. That is, that a person should forget, due to the excessiveness of his drinking, what the Torah has commanded regarding destroying Amalek. And he will then be, according to the natural morality, living in a, in a moral way, and thus will not know between the cursedness of Haman and the blessedness of Mordecai. Because according to nature, one should never seek vengeance or curse even those who seek to do them evil under any circumstance. Now, these are his reflections, you know, about nature and so on. But the point that's so striking to me is that he takes a commandment that everybody agrees is a, bibl is a biblical commandment, says explicitly, remember what Amalek did and wipe them out, and says that on Purim, the commandment is to get drunk so that we forget, to we forget the commandment. I've never seen anything so bold in my life. So what, 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 what it tells me, see, it tells me something that we, we ignore. Now, one of the strengths of the rabbinic tradition, because we ask ourselves, who appointed these rabbis to be our leaders? Well, you know who appointed these rabbis to be our leaders? The people who accept them as leaders. They, they empower them. And the source of their power is their teaching, and I would say their moral, their, 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 their integrity. And that part of it is that you're, you're dealing with people who are who, like Ibishitz, who's extremely learned and has a self-confidence to be able to, to sort of push back on the tradition in this way that actually undermines the very teaching of, of, of religion for the sake of the religious teaching, as if to fulfill the, the verse in Psalms. Eight la sot la shem, there's a time to come forward to do for God, hey feru torotecha, 
turn your Torah upside down. So Eibeshitz turns the Torah upside down for the sake of pr promoting a moral teaching in a holiday that some accuse of being a holiday of debauchery and turn it into a holiday of moral, moral, moral aspiration. Thank you, and happy Purim. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.